Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by TireRack.com, RockAuto.com, and State Farm. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Okay, here's MotorWeek podcast number 207. Here we go. Thank you, Alec Webb. Welcome, everyone, to MotorWeek podcast number 207. And we're here in Studio C at MotorWeek World Headquarters. And around our table today, I am joined by writer-producer Brian Robinson. Hello, John. And our writer, Garrick Zykin. Thank you for having me. And road test producer, Ben Davis. Hi, Captain. Let's see. We run down the... What you laughing at? I said I captain and he starts <laughs> laughing. I love that. Like, That's great. <laughs> we got a lot to talk about today. Cars we've recently tested, including, and let's start with the 2019 Ford Mustang Shelby GT350. Garrett? Mm, yes, I got lucky on this one. Um, so we've driven this. There's a story there, probably. <laughs> um, so we're familiar with this car. Um, we've driven it uh, in 2016 at Roebling. Um, Still the high revving, flat plane crank, 5.2 liter V8, uh, good for 526 horsepower. They are, as we know, coming out with the uh, GT500. So some of the work that they have mm. learned there, they've added into this. In aerodynamics. Aerodynamics, and yeah. So, so there's a revised grille closeout. There's a new rear spoiler, optional gurney flap. Um, they recalibrated the springs and revised the damping. Uh, they worked with Michelin on the tires, so it's a uh, Ford Performance Spec Pilot Sport Cup 2 tires. Compound's a little different. The tread pattern is exclusive to the GT350. Um, we drove this at the M1 concourse in Pontiac, Michigan. It's, a, it's short. It's a mile and a half, mm -hmm. a lot of turns. Um, so you really got to see how, how the car handled. Um, very agile. It handles well on the track, of course, and had great grip. How are they positioning this car vis-a-vis -vis the 500? Because it's it's not really that it's less a car. It's mm -hmm. just a different car. Sure. Um, well, I, I think that this is, you know, we're all waiting for, for the 500, and um, they're still saying 700-plus horsepower. Mm -hmm. They have not narrowed it down. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, at the event, they're still trying to get as much horsepower out, out of right. it. Yes. Um, well, that one's actually going to be more expensive. So if a lot you more want expensive. that, yeah. um, but you don't want to spend spend that uh you know this this would be the car my impression on this car is i think this car makes you a better driver than you are i think that you because of the engineering and the way that everything comes together you actually you have to know how to drive a manual um you have to know your way around the track the basics and you have to have common sense but the car really does a lot of the work for you and I, I was really surprised about how it all came, came together. It was really a, a lot of fun to drive. It, it's interesting. What you haven't talked about mm -hmm. is this car is not necessarily heavy with a lot of driver's aids. It's got the basics, mm -hmm. skid control and stuff like that. But right. unlike a lot of the stuff that we see, especially from Europe, you still have to drive this car. So when you say it makes you, you feel like it makes you a better driver, that's actually a really big compliment. Because a lot of cars can make you feel like you're a big driver, but it's all electronics. True. But you didn't right. you didn't feel that way with this car. No, I, I I just felt like all the components came together in such a way that um, if 
if you you know put put in like I said, if you can drive a manual and you have common sense and you know the basics around the track, you know, you're going to have fun in this car. Is this car a better or smarter buy versus, say, the GT500? <laughs> I know it's going to be a big difference in price, but is this just a smarter, better car for the average person? Uh, I, I would say average if... enthusiast. Definitely smarter if you're trying to uh, commute as well as some... Um, you know, semi-regular track duty mm -hmm. than a GT500, which you probably wouldn't be able to... I mean, granted, it's fast and it's awesome, but how much fun are you going to have driving that on a street? I mean, there's only so fast... Especially if it rains. Yeah. Brian, any, any comment? Um, I probably haven't driven the GT500 yet, but I, I would have no problem driving it every day. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously your more affordable right. option. So, I mean, there's... There's that. I mean, there's, you know, giving people choices, which is always good. Right. Yeah. I remember. It's always been a 350 and a 500, so. It's interesting that the price for the GT350 is almost exactly what the price was for the last GT500. Mm. That they, uh, and, and they, of course, going for way above list at the time. So we've seen quite a bit of price creep in those years. Uh, it, they both look awesome, although I have to sort of ag agree with Ben, no relation. Um, I, th I like, I think the 350 is kind of a sleeper because there isn't, correct me if I'm wrong, Garrett, there's not that much difference in the anticipated acceleration between the two. Right. Uh, no, um, actually, we're estimating zero to sixty is just under four seconds, um, which is just slightly Maybe a half less second. Than, yeah, less than the GT five hundred. Yeah, or a half GT, second yeah. more. We did drive it on the street um, briefly, and you know it's it, it's comfortable on the street. Um, it would be frustrating if, as fast as the car can go, in the legal speed limits that. That, that we all are they forced do get to, in the way of to enjoyment i would have liked to have driven this car um on that track there's not a very long stretch so i would have liked to drive it maybe in one of those western states where yeah. you can just go for miles and miles yeah. and miles really fast the next car and we're going to start with garrick again mm -hmm. this this is the dilemma that people like us that test cars are often in i know most people wouldn't see it as a dilemma but going from a 500 plus horsepower car to then getting into a 200 horsepower car mm -hmm. and evaluating them separately. And we're actually talking about um, Volkswagen's top uh, sedan, uh, the Ardeon, uh, two liter turbo I-4, so no V8 here, 220 horsepower, six speed manual or seven speed DCT and priced at about a little less than half of what that Shelby was worth. Mm -hmm. So kind of wrap us up as, you know, everybody's dumping sedans, Right. Volkswagen staying at least true to the course for now. What do you think of the Ardeon? Sure. Well, I had, had the, um, the the benefit of driving the Ardeon first and then, and then the Shelby. Ah, good. So, okay. Um, a little bit easier. Right. It was a little bit easier. Um, Ardeon, just uh, the name Art because it's stylish, and Eon is what Volkswagen says implies a premium model. Um, so I wonder I, what I, dictionary they got that one on. Right. Well, well, exactly. And it's interesting. That, I mean, they go through 17 different languages and all these different dialects to make sure that the names are not offensive before they even get to the lawyers. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so this they didn't is, ask me. I'm kind of offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this replaces the CC, although Volkswagen points out that the CC was on a different platform so so they take a little bit of an issue of that oh, terminology but really it, but, but it does <laughs> so the Arteon's on the mqb architecture uh, it has a nice sitting low and wide um very pretty car it is it it, it really is or uh, handsome it, maybe it, the proper that, word that, that coupish 
style. It's, you know, anytime we get into something coupish, uh, headroom in the back seat is something that you think about. I actually rode around the back seat for a while. I was going to ask you because you're, um, you're six foot, I, I, I think. Six feet, yeah. yeah. They've, you know, they've scooped out the headliner and, um, I didn't really have have a problem and wouldn't have a problem sitting back there yeah. for for a long time. Um, it it feels um, very solid. It has a certain amount of heft that some of the other Volkswagens don't have. I'm thinking of like Passat and Jetta. I feel like they're very light on their feet. Mm -hmm. This one has a, a little bit more of a heft. More um, luxury car, I guess. It is, and they're actually going for a grand touring kind, mm -hmm. kind of style, and I, I think that that I, I would go for that. But with that, um, it, it's actually about 375 pounds heavier than the Passat, the front-wheel drive, but it has that more of that horsepower. I, with plenty of horsepower, uh, our drive was up and down mountains and through canyons and things like that. I didn't feel like that, you know, it was struggling at, at any point, and there were two adults in, in, in the car. Um, it has that, um, uh, that light Volkswagen steering we've seen before, but it has that nice low-end torque that, that, that also helps. I feel like the car is kind of a bridge between Volkswagen and Audi. Audi. <laughs> um, it, the interior, it's very Volkswagen, but it's, it's a little bit more upscale. Mm -hmm. Um, and particular with the optional digital display, um, that's very Audi. And, um, but I liked it. I, I really did. And, and again, I, I think it's a bridge between, you know, Volkswagen and Audi for someone who doesn't necessarily want to spend as much for an Audi, but they want a little bit more from Volkswagen, this this would be the car. I agree with you on the interior when I got into it at the auto show and it's, uh, it has the um, uh, the GPS mapping between the gauges, as Correct, I believe, yeah. and a feature Audi's had for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. But it did feel like they were making more of an effort to give people a stepping stone right. than they had before. Right, exactly. Uh, you say the, oh, I'm go sorry ahead, to interrupt. Please. Digital, you say a digital dash is optional. It is a like a just standard analog dials? Yes. Like a base. Oh, yes. I haven't. I love that. I haven't seen that since the nineties. I know. <laughs> well, Volkswagen still has uh, remained, I think, pretty steadfast on their uh, gauge clusters. It's like been, here's your choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's at great. least they give you a choice. Brian, any comment? Uh, I haven't really been around it much. Uh, I do like the looks of it. I'm just not sure who's going to buy it. Yeah. It's if you put a big square back on the back and a hatch maybe it'll sell but i'd buy it yeah and, it's and very that, attractive that is one distinction from the cc yeah. this is a hatchback yeah. so you open it up and you have plenty you can get a lot in there whereas the cc was it was a trunk and that was one of the um, complaints about that car do you think yeah. since we're starting to see more hatchbacks mm -hmm. in the u.s mm -hmm. is that working does anybody have an impression do they call it a hatchback or do they call it a four-door coupe i think they call no, it, it a it's a four-door coupe but it has it but has it is a hatchback, hatchback. right hatchback. i just wonder what how what they called it yeah right did they, they they must have scooped out the back so that you can it's fairly deep. It is, yes. Yeah. yeah you and with the seats down, it, it looks enormous. It really, yeah. it really I think does. more people are, are becoming more accepting of hatchbacks simply because uh, everyone buys SUVs or crossovers mm. which are just slightly hatchbacks with slightly higher ground clearance. So I think it's becoming less and less of a distinction. Yeah. That's that, that's interesting because hatchbacks in Europe have been popular for forever. Forever. Yeah. And they just have never caught on here. Uh, the Arteon, they're expecting it to be very popular in China with the, with the longer wheelbase. So they can uh, have a chauffeur up front. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. So hmm. We haven't quite gotten there. Who knew? <laughs> Thank you, Garrett. Sure. Let's move on to um, uh, something we did this year, which it was we, – we, sometimes you get tired of hearing about all of the new electric vehicles that are 70-plus thousand dollars and up, and, and you forget that they're actually, if you want to go EV, and more and more people are, 
um, that there are quite a few more modestly priced EVs. So we rounded up five of them and had a good chance to take them out on the road and just sort of see which ones worked better in which conditions. I'm going to run down the list and then just everybody just start chiming into what you thought of them in general or specifically. We had the uh, Hyundai Ioniq, which has about 124 miles of range, a VW e-Golf, 125 mile of range. Then we crank it up to the over 200 mile group Nissan Leaf Plus 226, uh, the Chevrolet Bolt EV at 238, and the Kia Nero EV, one more, I, th I think they're at 200. 139 miles of range. All uh, smallish, compact or subcompact in style, and uh, but useful, I think. Uh, anybody want to start? What was your favorite, Brian? Uh, I didn't drive them as much as Garrick did. Uh, I, I like... Uh I like the fact that all of these are well over 100 miles of range yep. and, and under 40 grand. That's pretty amazing. Um, wouldn't have predicted that a few years ago. But uh, uh, e-golf is just as fun to drive as a GTI. Um, I, I love driving that car. The Leaf Plus is way still what it was, more techy inside. Uh, I've, Chevrolet Bolt, I mean, we, we've always loved that. I think I was most impressed with the Nero EV. Um, just that thing had a ton of power. Oh, yeah. Light up those front wheels at will anywhere. <laughs> that was a hot ride. <laughs> Plus, you, you made a comment uh -oh. uh, about how the Nero delivers something that the Bolt doesn't. So, um, hmm. Well, you said they both are styled like oh, along yeah. the uh, SUV, you know, image. Right. Tall, boxy. Yeah, the Bolt EV, they kind of uh, marketed as a crossover, but there's really not a lot of storage space in there. Whereas the Nero had, uh, I mean, it's really just a wagon itself, but it does have a lot of storage space in there. And we like the Nero in all configurations, so it kind of makes makes sense that we do. Uh, I enjoyed driving them. I found the the uh, Bolt was still had um, almost as much of a sporty feel as the E-Golf. I think just driving the E-Golf is still my favorite, but if I was going to buy one, I'd want over the 200 miles. But... Did anybody ever get range anxiety driving around in them? You know, five years ago, if we had been doing this, it would have been like you, you start worrying about if you can get there the moment you unplug and hit the road. Mm -hmm. So I was on, on this trip. Right. I did not have range anxiety because our uh, executive producer, Dave Scrivener, had already mapped it out. So he knew so where, he knew where everything yeah. was. But um, that says right there, you've got to know where to, where, what you, where you to plug in. You, you do. You have to plan ahead. And I think that the people who are buying them now are early adopters. So they like learning and figuring th things out. Um, I will say driving. So we drove from Western Maryland to uh, Ocean City. Ocean City. And spent the night in Ocean City. And then I drove back and I drove the Bolt all three days, which I never got to. I'd love, I really enjoyed driving. I never got tired of being in it. Hmm. I've been in other vehicles for a long time where you'll get tired of it after a while. But driving back, um, I had a full charge. I knew I had enough miles, but I was driving more economically up until maybe that last hundred miles, just to make sure. I knew where I could charge along the way. I just mm -hmm. didn't want to have to spend the time to do it. Once I knew for sure, then I was, you know, enjoying the torque a little bit more. And I had like 60 miles left by the time I, I got back here. I look at these cars, and Brian already mentioned the price. And, yes, it, it's a little bit more than uh, something comparable in size. Mm -hmm. But I think you've got to look long-term and think, okay, I'm not going to be buying gas. Right. Electricity is pretty cheap to charge up. 
Um, I look at it. Maintenance, Part, maintenance yeah. is going to be much less. I mean, you, you know, no oil changes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I am at the point where if I was buying a second or third car for a family, I think an EV would be at the top of the list. Sure. To Garrick's, oh, sorry. No, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, to I've your, talked enough. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> never. never. Uh, to your point, they, they almost force you to drive more economically, which mm -hmm. I think is a good thing. Uh, but almost more intelligently, of, I'd like to say all of the uh, GPS systems now they'll they'll put up a map of where you can go and where you can't go and charging stations along the way. So they're you know taking as much of the anxiety out of it mm -hmm. as they can. And I think that's more crucial on these EVs. In fact, my 90-year-old father, I was driving around with him, and he had noticed that on some of the internal combustion cars, they tell you where a gas station is. With these, you really, you know, would be really helpful yeah. on, on the, the map if, if you saw where it was. Was he surprised at the performance, how fast it was? He was, yes. Because yeah. Yeah. a lot of people yeah. still think electric cars are slow. And it's just right, go-karts. And, and, and that's my—I I think that— First of all, the more people who drive them, the more popular they will become. Second of all, I feel like with the range on, on some of these now, it's we're kind of getting at a tipping point where it's not so much the range of the car, it's the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Correct. Well, that's, you would have, you knew I that first, exactly. first you know. hand. Um, and, and I think that the, the infrastructure is, is really lagging more than the, the car manufacturer's ability to create range. Talk about uh, charging up at the RV camp. Uh, well, fortunately, that was not my task. Um, that, that, that was a bit slow. So we, we drove from um, here in Owings Mills to Deep Creek. So that's far western Maryland. Far western Maryland. Totally rural. As, as far as, as, as you can get, and mountains. So that's going to zap some of your energy. But I've done that in my car, too, and I noticed that, you know, I'm not getting as good mileage. So that, right. that, that, that's a tough drive. You recoup it going downhill, though, which you can't do in your gas car. Uh, I don't think you're getting mile-for-mile mile recouping. You're getting something. You're getting, you're getting something, something, but back. you're not getting it all back. Right, but you're getting you're not getting anything at all back True. in gas engine. Can't have it all. Yeah. Again. True. <laughs> you're getting some back. <laughs> the laws of physics here. Yeah. It was fine. So um, we did not start with a full charge, but so we got to Hagerstown from uh, uh, Deep Creek, which was about an hour. Yeah. Um, and then we charged up a little bit more, and then we stopped in um, Anne Arundel County and fully charged up, and then made it all the way to Ocean City. So it took, the trip took a lot longer than it would had we yeah. done that in an internal combustion car. Um, when they were doing this, it was part of a, an extensive uh, drive with these vehicles. At one point, they were, uh, because they couldn't find enough commercial chargers, they were actually at RV camps and used right. uh, adapters right. To, right. to charge up there. Right. And and uh, Dennis Smith, who was along with us, uh, who's who owns a Bolt, he was saying, yeah, you've got to have not only all the charging stations, but it's also helpful to have a guide to all the, the RV parks, sure. just in case. Right. Yeah, that's I, new. There's a guy, yeah. that, uh, one of the first Teslas we had, and he drove it across the country before uh, Tesla had all their superchargers mm -hmm. in, and that's what he would do. That he would charge RV campgrounds. And that was our situation up there. there. There were no charging stations, so we all of the cars were not fully charged when we left, um, but they all had some charge just because of how long it, it, it took. You made it. We made it. We, I, and again, like I said, I had no worries because we had somebody who'd planned it out and it was going to be fun. Script who planned it out. Yes, it was. <laughs> so so don't go bad. out there. Oh, don't go the out there without now. knowing where you're going to, to hook up at. All right. Thanks, Garrett. Sure. And Brian and Benny. And lightning round time. Uh, more or less have 30 seconds or whenever you get tired to talk about a, a trending automotive topic. 
Okay, by now, most everybody has probably seen the Matt Damon uh, trailer for the new movie Ford v. Ferrari, Ford versus Ferrari. It's supposed to hit the uh, theaters in November. They're bringing it out now because this is the time of the year for the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And the film goes into the bitter, bitter rivalry between Ford and Ferrari in the 1960s. Ford tried to buy Ferrari, and Ferrari said no. Specifically, so Ford went after them at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1960. 66 Ford finished 123 in the GT40. Uh, anyway, you look at it, it was a monumental event. We're not going to talk about that movie. The trailer kind of says it all. But the question for everybody around the table today is if you were going to make an automotive themed movie, fiction or nonfiction, what would be about? Now, what would it be about? Bonus points if you know what actor or actresses would have starring roles. I'm not sure what the bonus points get you. But, okay, if you were going to, you had all the money in the world and you were a big car fanatic and you wanted to uh, finance a movie. Got it. What would you, uh, what kind of story or what stories would you go after? I'd tell the Pontiac GTO story. I was a good, good man. Robert John Downey. DeLorean. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. John DeLorean. Yeah. Oh, great, right. good. That would be a great that, Very, very good. you like that, yeah. Anyone else? I just think, and it would be more of a documentary, The just some of the early history of, of the cars. You have, like, the Quadrifolio. You know, how did that, where that, did that, that, name that come, come from? Yeah, where did the name come from? Um, four-leaf clover. The, the, yeah, it is yeah. four-leaf clover, but there, there's a story behind with the, the, the drivers. Right. And why the they field. picked it. Yeah, why, yeah. Why, why they picked that. Mercedes-Benz, how they, you know, came up with that. Um Lamborghini, their cars are all named after um, um, bulls because the owner was born of the Zodiac Taurus. Mm -hmm. you know, I think, and he also had a bone to pick with Ferrari. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think some of those things are, are kind of interesting. That'd be more documentary-ish. Um, and I, I don't have a uh, star I would pick, although Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> that, that, was, that was nice. <laughs> I would watch that. Brian. I don't really have a good answer. Oh, for this. come on. You always have an answer. Maybe uh, something like more old school about racing, uh, like dirt track racing, kind of where it all got started. Maybe, uh, or going back to, you know, motorcycles and the old board tracks. That's a good one. Uh, stuff like that. Um, I don't have any good ideas. Sorry. Uh, a Corvette movie would be cool. The, if you haven't seen the. A show about two guys. Yeah, you know, well, no, how the how Duntoff uh, developed the Corvette. Yeah, that would be a good one. car. And that, that was a hard sell. Yeah. It was a very hard sell. Um, well, I like to. see these movies. Well, you got you got to put Get the stars in and simplify the story and you know make it a little sexy one way or the other. I mean the uh, the uh, Ford v Ferrari. I watched the trailer and read the synopsis and they really you know uh, Matt Damon plays Carol Shelby and I have a feeling they've really made simplified it because Shelby was only brought in at the end because the Ford designers had this great car that could do 200 miles an hour. Unfortunately, it became airborne at 170, mm -hmm. and they needed his racing expertise not only to massage it and make it so it could actually go into a race, but also just to juice up the effort with his uh, uh, band of uh, merry men and women who did basically they, did a lot about did they racing. They finished one, two, three. They <laughs> did. They did finish one, two, three. But uh, was it Ken? What was one the car was a lap down though. There, no, no. Was like, the oh, picture good. was was staged. Yeah. They finished one, two, three, but 
the the first place car was not the first the first place car that went across the finish line did not win the race. Right. The second car did because it started further back and actually covered more distance. So they botched the photo finish, yeah. and the driver they wanted to win, um, God, Ken slips my mind, uh, did not win. But they didn't care. They won. And uh, the Ferraris had had trouble, so they were way back in the pack. So it was not, you know, it was not one of those finishes where they were Could just uh, neck uh, and uh, <laughs> a little bit ahead of the Ferraris. But looks like a fun movie, and I kind of can't wait to see it. Um, Will it be better you, than Driven with Sylvester well, Stallone? I, Dude, that was an epic <laughs> masterpiece. Yeah, probably not. You mentioned John DeLorean. You mentioned the GTO, but, yeah. you know, chart DeLorean through GTO, through the DeLorean Motor Company and mm -hmm. the drug deals and all that. It's got a lot yeah, of stuff in it. It's scandalous. You know, and then, you know, it could end badly or you could end him with, you know, what was his reaction when they took the car and made it, put it in Back to the Future. I don't know. You know that, that could have been something funny. I have one more to add, and it would probably be a pretty much of a downer, but I'd like to see the story of the Edsel. Uh, you know, it's the most monumental flop in modern automotive history. I believe that's straight to home video. Yeah, could be. <laughs> like I said, well, it'll get a viewership just a little bit less than uh, Garrett's uh, documentary, probably. All right. Enough. You stole my thunder anyway. <laughs> All right. Anybody got, uh, we have a question from a viewer, from another John. Questions. Okay. I've got a 2016 Honda Accord and was surprised to hear of the extra maintenance that comes with direct injection engines. Uh, they're known for carbon buildup problems. Not all of them, John. Yes. Also, because of our travel schedule, the car sits for up to four weeks at a time. And when we return, we often find our battery is dead. Our dealer says this is the new normal. Is this really normal for modern cars? Oh, yeah. As far as the carbon buildup, yeah, that's more people trying to sell aftermarket products than reality. BMW had some problems early on, but... Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, as far as dead batteries, yeah, it doesn't take long for cars. I mean, uh, we go pick up cars at dealerships often, and sometimes the car sitting there in a lot, it won't start out to go get a charge bag, and it's only been there a couple of weeks. There's a lot um, of stuff that's left on in a car just because of new yeah, electronics. Yeah, all kind of things sucking your uh, power out of Theft your battery. Deft deterrent. So a couple of weeks, yeah, and uh, that's what they do now. He's right. The, the only thing you can do, John, uh, to protect that is, number one, make sure your battery is never more than a couple years old. When you buy a battery, go for the biggest, what is it, CCA, cold cranking amps, the highest you can get. And the other thing, as Brian alluded to, is get one of those lithium uh, battery packs and stick it in the trunks. Yeah, or just un uh, unhook your battery. You can get a quick disconnect. You'll lose all your presets, but mm -hmm. uh, otherwise you can get a quick disconnect where you just flip a switch and it'll... Uh, like the old racer way. Yeah, turn the power off. I wonder if that if that's advisable though. Uh, you know, oh, I'm giving bad information. I have no idea. No. I mean, it's no different than it's when you change your battery. <laughs> no, I, I I don't drive. My daily driver is actually not a daily driver. It's more of a monthly driver, and I hook I unhook my battery. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Anybody else have comment about that? I wouldn't try on that? a 48 volt car. No, I would not. <laughs> and that's true. A lot of the new ones are coming well, that way. Ben, it's still a 12 volt. So well, battery on the 48 volt. That, oh. Those systems aren't integrated into the into the battery. Well, just make sure you disconnect the right switch thing. Get a switch rated for that kind of power. You are a, you're a classic con, car kind of guy. Do you ever uh, come up to where you're short on power to get started? No, I see. It must be because the cars I have draw less power when they're dormant. Maybe. 
I use battery tenders when they're at home. I've got something sitting in the garage for weeks, not a battery charger, but what they call a tender, and it seems to keep everything up to speed. Uh, before that, I uh, my Mini Cooper would sit half a winter, and it it would seriously have battery problems. And every time the battery ran down, it set a code in the car, and that caused me lots of problems. Oh, so you, you've got to be careful about letting your battery run down. So, John, um, I wouldn't be too much concerned with the um, the fuel injection situation. I would recommend using uh, the best uh, gasoline your pocketbook can buy. The additives there make a big difference. And keep your battery up to stuff and maybe either get a cutout switch like Brian was talking about or one of those lithium battery packs and throw it in the trunk. And hopefully you will be able to get beyond this situation. Or a trickle charger. Or a trickle. That's what I was saying, the maintenance, the uh, battery maintenance. It's basically a trickle charger with a little bit of a brain in it. Rant and raves, anyone? Anybody got something that's bothering them one way or the other? I want a scan button like you used to have in cars. I've had cars in the past. Instead of just a seek button. Hmm. To scan through the radio station. I, You know, it seems like I was just in a car recently over the weekend on a long trip. And wherever the scan is, it's so far in the menu that, you know, I'm on the interstate driving 70 miles an hour, which is a legal yeah. limit. I don't have yeah. time to go through that. No, that's a really good point. Some years ago, they stopped putting the scan button mm-hmm. on and just put the seek button, which just goes to the next strong signal or to a preset. No, I want to scan. It, I, just I agree keep with going. You. And I want it to keep going until I stop it. I've had some where they, it'll only go around once. Mm-hmm. I just... I, I, I want that. So, and it's it's frustrating in every car that that I get into. So that's a really good one. I concur. That Somebody brings needs to look at old ahead. school radio technology and just make it happen. Mm-hmm. I was ranting about the big buttons, and big buttons, yeah, big like, buttons. Yeah, we're slowly getting the volume knobs back. No, but. no. Talk. We were talking uh, off mic about that. Yeah. Your idea, your brilliant breakthrough it's, idea. It's for, not an for idea. Not. It's simply my forefathers of audio awesomeness came up with this. <laughs> I'm just re- rethinking it. But everybody's been griping about volume knobs and tune knobs have gone away. But now they're slowly coming back. Mm-hmm. But now you have a volume knob that just all it does is volume and power on, on power off. Right. If you're lucky, it'll power on, power off mm-hmm. as well. And then the tune knobs further on the passenger side. And often it does other things other than tuning, and it's not what you want. And often you got to stretch a little bit to get to it. But, I mean, 60s and 70s, home audio technology. 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. You got this perfect opportunity. The knob's already there. These knobs used to do three, four things back in the day. Why can't I get an outer ring on Uh the volume knob Mm -hmm. that I can spin to tune? Hey, there you go, tune stations. And got to push it on, push it off, and I got volume as well. But also, back in the day, you could pull it out a little bit, about a quarter of an inch, and you could adjust bass and treble. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, come on. Gosh, breakthrough technology that's <laughs> 70 years old. How about that? That's a very good one. Thanks, Benjamin. Yeah. Anyone want to add to that? And rant. All right. Got nothing to add to We're done. It's the Motor Week podcast number 207. I, I want to thank. scan a long time ago. This <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. We're, you you've been, you've been very entertaining about today. The movie. That was Brian Robinson. <laughs> ben Davis, Garrett Zykin. We're going to wrap this up. Our podcast uh, creator is Bob Mixter. Our audio engineer is David Wainwright, podcast producer, Greg. 
Greg Carlos, who's not even here today. Thank you one and all for watching Motor Week on public television stations around the country and also on the Motor Trend Cable Network. If you want to find out where to watch Motor Week, please go to our website, motorweek.org or .com, and you can find a station listing there. And by the way, Everyone that's listening to our podcast, thank you very much for listening today. And make sure that your next drive is a memorable one. You have been listening to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by TireRack.com, RockAuto.com, and State Farm.